Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we discuss the issue at the heart of England's defence. We'll ask if £150 million is a reasonable price for Declan Rice. We'll talk about the ethical line when it comes to choosing Chelsea's new owners. There's an update on the Women's Champions League and the search for a new manager at Manchester United. This is The Game. Hello again, welcome back to the Game Football Podcast. I'm Hugh Wisencroft alongside Tom Clark and Jonathan Northcroft. Uh, we'll be speaking a little bit later uh, to Molly Hudson as well. We've got to start by talking about the international break, of course. England playing friendlies with Switzerland and Ivory Coast over the next five or six days. Both games at Wembley, first one on Saturday. But I have been thinking about the England defence. And I think a lot of people have been thinking about the England defence because there have been a, a raft of withdrawals in this squad. And if you look at the players who are still there, I think it's going to be a bit of an issue. You've got Harry Maguire and John Stones, of course. Tyrone Mings and Connor Cody, who seem to get picked in every Southgate squad. Arsenal's Ben White is there. There's a first call up for Crystal Palace's Mark Gahey. Even when you look at the fullbacks, Tyrick Mitchell and Carl Walker-Peters have just been called in due to withdrawals. Luke Shaw is there. He's been out of form. After the number of withdrawals, it is a great chance to experiment, as Paul Joyce has been writing in The Times, but he feels it will be a missed opportunity given the number of players who now aren't there. Tom Clark, what do you think about it? Because I think fans might expect Harry Maguire to be dropped on form, John Stones over a lack of game time. Should we see a new look England defence? I mean, it's been a while since we've talked about the England defence, isn't it, Hugh? You were saying you've mm. been thinking about it. it. It brings me back to those great old days before the Euros. Um, <laughs> see if we can get through this without mentioning everyone's favourite term, back three. I mean, lots of, lots of points to go out there that you've raised. I would say the first one, Harry Maguire, is a big talking point. But I do wonder with him whether Gareth Southgate is doing what he has done with other players, Raheem Sterling, perhaps, for example, before the Euros, being in and out of the Man City team, Southgate stuck by him and was rewarded. And there are lots of players who, for whom club form may be on the wane, but then they seem to produce for England. So maybe that's what Southgate is going for with Maguire, though undoubtedly on form, he perhaps could, you could argue he shouldn't even be in the squad. 
I think you mentioned Paul Joyce's piece there that's on the Times today talking particularly about Trent Alexander-Arnold. You know, this would have been a great opportunity to test that theory about him playing as a right back in a back four at international level because he's been superb this season. You know, we discussed on a recent show, almost does it even matter that we have to debate his defending when he's so good going forward and his passing ability. That is a real shame that he's he's dropped out of these matches, as you say. I'm not necessarily sure I'm in the kind of worried camp about England's defence um, going into a World Cup. I, I, For me, John Stones, um, I've been a big fan of John Stones before. I think at the Euros, he proved what a top-level elite defender he is. I think he is a kind of nailed-on defender. But I think the Maguire factor does pose an interesting debate. The absence from the squad of Fikayo Tomori, for me, is an interesting talking point as well. You've got a guy there who's he's 24, He's been in squads before. I think he's played, made you know, made one debut maybe game against uh, Kosovo, I think it was. And he's, by all accounts, performing very well for AC Milan in Serie A this season. I had a quick look at his stats before coming on. 22 appearances. He's kind of fifth for tackles of all defenders in Serie A. You know, that kind of thing. Getting praise from Franco Baresi. And also, I spotted an interview. I'm sure lots of you saw it as well. I've been speaking in Italian um, during a post-match interview, which again, very much fits the mold of bright young lad, which definitely seems to be a factor, doesn't it? Under Gareth Southgate, he likes impressive people as well as impressive footballers. So that to me is a surprise. I would have had Tamori in over uh, Mings or White, say. So, uh, but I, th- I, I think there's options there. I don't think it's as doom and gloom as you, as perhaps some people are, are, are wondering. But Paul Joyce is right, and you're right. It's not the ideal preparation, and not the ideal situation for a couple of friendly games where you should be experimenting. Johnny, it feels to me like Gareth Southgate has prioritised players who are good with their feet in central defence. Um, when you look at the players that are there, Mark Gahey, who's been brought in, is very good with his feet, and maybe that's. One area, at least, that he has a positive compared to Fakaya Tomori, who's not bad with his feet by any stretch of the imagination. But maybe he thinks Gehi can can offer something different there. You've got Mings, who's got balance with the left foot. Cody, who was a natural midfielder as a youngster, whose passing is, is pretty good as well. And then you've got Stones and Maguire, who've impressed in that area. Do you think we need to prioritise out-and-out old-school defending? Well, I do think this comes down to a question of formation. So I'm sorry, I'm going to mention the back three. Hey, he's gone in. He's gone in. <laughs> well, I, I think there's a there's a there's a one of the most fundamental decisions, if not the most fundamental decision, that Gareth has to make ahead of this World Cup is, you know, he's had two tournaments now where, although using a back four at times in qualifying. He's defaulted to the back three, and it's served him extremely well, but it's it's served him well in the way that we've all observed, as in it's made England very hard to beat, and it's allowed England to grind the way to a certain level, but not quite get over the line. So I think one of the, 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 the biggest issues is, is he going to go for it a third time? And if so, we're going to, you know, he's, he's then going to kind of rely on trying to do marginally better what he's already done at two tournaments. Now, if that's a decision, and I think it will be the decision, and I think that's why Harry Maguire is still almost his number one defender because Gareth loves his ability, not that we've seen it much from Man United because this season because his confidence is so short, but he loves Maguire's ability to come out and break the lines when he, when he steps out with the ball. And, you know, you mentioned Tamori. I mean, Chris Smalling could never get a look in when he was at his best for Roma for the same reasons that, that Gareth doesn't look at... Or, or rather, he does look at, at ball playing centre halves ahead of, of out and out defenders because of this inclination towards 
the back three. That's why Gwehi and, 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 and White are such interesting prospects for him, though, because they're both extremely good with the ball, both extremely calm a temperament. You could see them playing in tournaments. You could see them adjusting tactically to the demands. And they're just in that much better form than Harry Maguire. So I, I think it's right that Maguire's in the squad. I think, you know, as Tom said, Gareth has done well with the philosophy of, of, of trying to have a club England and reward people that have done well for England. It's worked for him. But there comes a point where someone's lack of form becomes critical and you, you do risk it spilling over in the international stage. And I'd like to see Gehi and White get meaningful chances in these internationals, not be the guys that, you know, come on for the second half against Ivory Coast on, on next Tuesday night, but, you know, get meaningful chances, be put in with John Stones um, if he goes four at the back, or, or you know, be, be, be put in with Stones and Maguire in the Switzerland game straight up which is probably England's sort of the bigger one of the two, just because it's, it's a Saturday fixture and, and you know, Switzerland ranks slightly higher, I think, than Ivory Coast. So I, I think that there has to be meaningful chances because you can't, even if you want, I think emotionally he wants to start this World Cup with Stones and Maguire, but that would be a gamble as it stands to the way Harry Maguire's form is going. I think he has to have meaningful alternatives. You mentioned Mings and Cody. Their role is sort of pretty clear as as kind of elder statesmen of the squad and therefore, um, you know, the sort of culture aspects and so on. But he made, he's made it clear that he doesn't see them as, as tournament starters. We, we know that. So I think I think White and Gehi are, are great options for England to now have and they have to be given a proper chance in these games. I think the same. I, listen, I'm not... It's strange. I think... Ben White is a good player um, who could be a very good player. I haven't yet seen signs that he's going to be a world beater as a central defender, particularly in a four. But I do think his form deserves a chance with England. I do think, you know, alongside Gabriel, I do think they complement one another quite well. It's whether you can find a player that goes along with the skill set of Ben White for England quite well. But I do think he can play at this level and have an effect for England. His confidence seems to be growing. I would start him in both of these two matches for sure. Would you, Tom? I'm, I'm less convinced about Ben White, to be honest. I think I have been probably the biggest cheerleader for Mikel Arteta's Arsenal this season on this podcast, haven't I? But I, that's the one area for me in terms of both the recruitment and the performances on the pitch, that still feels a little bit uncertain. I think he, he wasn't great in that game against uh, Watford where they just won 3-2. I still don't think he looks quite like, you know, that kind of leader, that talismanic central defender that all these kind of top six clubs are trying to trying to find and that Manchester United tried to find with Harry Maguire. I don't think he's that. I think arguably he's the kind of defender that needs a player alongside him. I just wonder whether, you know, whether England would be better off going with Gay on the point of that he's different to Maguire. Don't try and replicate the kind of Stones-Maguire thing. If you're going to switch, why not look for strengths elsewhere? You know, Gay's turn of pace, his ability on the ball, as Johnny says, you know, try to find and build something different rather than who can be my next best Stones and Maguire, who can be my next best Harry Maguire, because... You know, ultimately, and this is where this is where a lot of debates around this England team and why you know Scottish fans like Johnny start rolling their eyes and getting bored because we have lots of talented players. But that's why Southgate go, always goes back to Raheem Sterling, despite the plethora of attacking talent, because 
at international level, you want experience. You want players who've been in these games. So it's going to be hard in some respects for these players to displace Harry Maguire just on that point because Southgate will look at the options and go, okay, experience, who matches him? Connor Cody, but he's not as good at this. Okay, who matches him at this, but he's not got the other attribute. So it'll be hard. And I almost wonder whether you'd be better off going with a completely different option to try that out because you're always going to come back to Maguire in some respects. No, I agree with you. But actually, I think England need to think of life without Maguire very soon. You can't keep making the argument he hasn't let the country down when his form's this bad because if it continues in this vein, it is only a matter of time until he lets the country down. And if his form gets any worse... You know, there will be arguments over whether he should even be in the England squad. And you can't keep really arguing, well, he hasn't put a foot wrong for the country. I do think you need another option. And again, I agree with Johnny. I don't care if it's a different system. But if he has a crisis of confidence like he's had at Manchester United with the England team, you can't put him in the team, even if it's for the World Cup, as good as he has has been. You, you, you can't. You just can't. Imagine his form for England replicates his form for Manchester United. You think he still warrants a starting place? I completely agree with you, but I go back to that point about, and this is kind of echoing some of the thoughts I had before the Euros, you know, all hail Gareth, trust in, trust in Southgate. Because you do have that sense that almost it almost works in Southgate's favour. I'm not saying that he wants players to be out of form and kind of confidence shot, but take Maguire, you know, think about the season he had before the Euros. There was lots of question marks over him, you know, on and off the field. There were points in the season where he looked in a really bad place and yet he still performed. I almost wonder with England, with players like Maguire, where Southgate kind of goes, come on, son, don't worry, you're in a safe place now. I'm here. We'll we'll get you back. We'll get you back. And I just think he almost fosters that feeling. I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's a kind of no one likes you, I don't care type thing as the kind of adapted version of the famous chant, but... I do think that weirdly helps Southgate and seems to bring out the best in certain players. So I agree with you. He's in awful form, but I don't necessarily think with players of his experience, Southgate necessarily minds that much. And I actually think sometimes he gets the best out of them in those situations. Johnny, when it comes to experimenting in these two games, aside from the defence, do you think we should see more of the fringe players playing in these two games? Should we see some of the new younger faces, see what they've got at this level? It's a difficult one because I think there's the, there's players who we have seen, for example, Bakayo Saka, who's been playing so well, that you actually want to see more of and, 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 and in combinations with the likes of a Foden and Harry Kane playing as Harry Kane's playing now and not not the kind of slightly below Harry Kane that, that we had at the Euros. So, I mean, there's combinations there with, with, with established players that would be great to see worked on semi-established players. But, I mean, Joyce's article today sets out really clearly that there's very, very little time now to try people to experiment. The next round of internationals will be just after the Champions League final. There'll probably be a huge number of call-offs. And then you're suddenly into World Cup run-up. So I suppose, you know, Tammy Abraham's the, 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 the big miss, isn't it? This would have been the one for for him to to get a proper chance to bed himself down. I don't think there's, there's not one name that, that really compelling name completely outside of the squad that, that, that comes to mind that I think has to give, be given a chance. It's more, Bellingham's another one. It's more guys that have had a little bit of a chance so far, but aren't starters yet, but I think should really be looked at as starters for the World Cup. Bellingham and Saka would, would, would be the two 
that I, I think they should be forefronted at these these internationals. Johnny, this isn't a dig about um, your age in relation to me and Hugh, I promise, but you have been in the game a bit longer than us, and particularly you know at the level of kind of correspondent, which means you follow England. Can you remember, you know, because as, as fans and as journalists, and as you, you know, my position as an editor, these international weeks are like, what can we talk about? What can we debate? And part of it comes around these young players who are going to break in. Yeah. Can you remember times in a lead up to a tournament where a player in these kind of friendly games did kind of come from the pack? Because to me, I, I was I was thinking back and... Yes, there are players that break in before a tournament, but they're either they're either at the Wayne Rooney level of just absolutely you can't leave them out. I can't remember necessarily anywhere at international level they get game time in friendlies and suddenly go, huh, this guy. Can you can you think of any? I mean, a difficult off the top of your head, maybe. Well, not 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 really. I mean, before the World Cup, actually, it, it's, it was these internationals, the spring ones, where Gareth first put. Deli Ali and Jesse Lingard together, which was what we saw in yeah. the World Cup. And I think Lingard had played a couple of times. Of course, he wasn't a young player, and Delhi was was well known as a talent. But you do see combinations sometimes come through. But yeah, I mean, like the Roonies and, and Rashford came very late into Euro 2016. I think he didn't play until the the summer internationals before the tournament. I think that, that if you look at the history of it, that, that these March or April ones are often where people play themselves out of squads. And I think I go back to '96, and I think I think Letizia was given eight. I mean, Venables didn't really want him and gave him almost like the hospital pass international at Wembley. It was at Hungary or something like that. And, you know, almost sort of set him up to not set him up to fail, but was able to use that as a right. I've given him a chance, and now he's not playing. The thing with Gareth is he. To be fair to him, he does try so many young players that compared to covering previous managers where, you know, let's say it's a Capello or or even, um, you know, going back and and, and um, Sven and you kind of, you know, come on, he's got, to, he's got to think outside the, he's got to think outside the big six clubs. He's got to think outside the established group and give this guy a chance. To be fair to Gareth, he's, he, he gets him in so quickly that he doesn't leave you a lot to, to write about really in, in, in those Senses. I, I, I think. I think. Look, I think when it all comes down to what we're looking at is an established manager who's now going to his third tournament. Who's done really well at the other two. Who's got a stable team, and I don't think we're going to see a great number of changes to anything. And we will have to try and debate it. We'll have to try and find talking points in, <laughs> in the papers. But it's going to be hard. I think. I think we're kind of. We could probably ink in eight or nine of the starters in that first World Cup game already. Oh, I mean, I would love to see a new midfield. Um, Connor Gallagher in there with Jude Bellingham, maybe in one of the games. I think we all know that likely to be in holding midfield, come what may, is going to be Declan Rice. And he's been hitting the headlines today, of course, with the England squad, but uh, with his club, West Ham United, as well. £150 million is reportedly the asking price for those who want to buy Declan Rice this summer. Rice has two years left on his contract in the summer and the club is able to extend it for a further year after that. So there's no real reason for this sale to be urgently happening. But I think it has reached a point that his talents are going in a certain direction and West Ham maybe feel like they can cash in at a very high point. For me, £150 million is an extremely high point. So the first question really is, is this a fair price for the talents of Declan Rice? Johnny, what do you think? <laughs> it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, so, okay, we've got, a, we've got a new TV deal and we've got, a, we've just had a January where 
you know, the, the, the net spend was, was an all-time record for the Premier League. And at this point in time, everyone's going to be quoting the highest possible prices because there hasn't been that deal that's set the, the benchmark yet. So I know exactly, I understand exactly why West Ham would, would, would quote that price. I guess they might benchmark it against Jack Grealish and say, look, you know, £100 million for a fringe fringe player. Declan Rice is much more important to England, blah, blah, blah. Don't forget as well, this is... This, this is the summer of transition at West Ham. This is where Mark Noble kind of holds hands over the you know, golden bubble to Declan Rice and he becomes the keeper of West Ham sort of thing. So, you know, this is important for them to, to keep him culturally and, and, of course, on the pitch. And knowing the manager, I know how much he loves Declan Rice. It would be the very, very last, very, very last deal he'd want to see done would be Declan Rice leaving. So for all those reasons... And you've mentioned the contract. It has to be has to be a high price. Has to be a high price. And the only way to knock that price down, I guess, would be either if the owners budged, and I think that might be an issue, or whether the player agitated. And I can't see Declan Rice doing that. So, was there a direct answer to the question there? John? <laughs> He's worth 150 million because my mate says so. <laughs> Tom, what do you think? Yeah, I think he is worth that in the modern context oh of God. football, of English <laughs> players. I think in terms of his age, 23, in terms of the progression he's shown, um, I think West Ham are fully fully justified in demanding that as the figure. Obviously, lots of um, bits of context that go into it that Johnny's, Johnny said, so I won't repeat them. We hinted there with the discussion around England, around our position as journalists and creating debates sometimes. And this one with Declan Rice kind of feels like a, the next move for Declan Rice. Declan Rice's next move can be to stay at West Ham. There's absolutely no doubt about that from my point of view. He could maybe sign a contract extension or a new improved contract. Gary Jacob is writing a piece today reportedly on around £75,000 a week. For his status as a player, he could justify more than that. West Ham are two seasons now have been pushing at the right end of the table. And when you look around, why on earth would Declan Rice be going to Manchester United when he only needs to look at players like Harry Maguire, Jadon Sancho and others to think, why on earth would I go there? Situation at Chelsea is increasingly unpredictable despite being linked with them quite a lot. They've got a lot of midfield talent already. Why would you go there unless they suddenly said, OK, we're going to get rid of Kante and Jorginho? If Manchester City and Liverpool don't want you, stay where you are, Declan. You've got plenty of time. I know there'll be the argument he wants to go and win trophies. He might win a trophy at West Ham or he can move in two years' time. Declan Rice's next move can be just stay where you are. Waste of time to stay at West Ham United, unfortunately, <laughs> because they're not going to do anything. Yeah, um, yeah they're not going to do anything. I- but then, all right, and count, count with my point with £120 million move to the new Manchester United under their new manager, and in three years' time, he's done nothing equal, you know, the yeah, same no, way. I- I, I, I wouldn't I would I wouldn't say to him to go to Manchester United either. No, but go ahead, Johnny. Look, next season Declan Rice could be in the Champions League having already won the, the Europa League, you know, which is which is more than United and a couple of other, other suitors would be able to offer. So I don't buy that he has to leave West Ham to, to succeed or win trophies. No, yeah, but I just don't know what is you know, okay, if they get to the Champions League, I think he might stay for one extra year. But ultimately I think if a decent move is on for him, he would want to do it. I think most players would. Um, I think £150 million is hugely inflated by about £50 million. Listen, £80 to £100 million, just so we're all clear, is a huge amount of money for a football player and would put him amongst the most expensive players there have ever been. 
And he's a very good player. He is a very good player, but he plays in a position where you don't spend 150 million pounds on players. And I think that is part of it as well. It's you know, people go, he's worth 150 million because he's brilliant. He's a match winner. Yeah, he is. But he, he still plays quite deep in central midfield area. He's not spraying 50-yard balls. He's not having loads of assists. He doesn't get loads of goals. As great as he is at what he does, you do not invest £150 million in a player that does what he does. Because truly, you could go out with 50, 60, 70 million and get a player who might not be as good as him, but does a lot of what he does. It just isn't a good investment to spend that much money on Declan Rice. 80 to 100, I'd say Manchester United probably need him for that amount of money. And if that's the difference, then yeah. But I think if you're talking over 100 million pounds for, for Declan Rice, something's gone wrong here. I mean, really, yeah, Tom. I think, uh, no, I think you're right. But there is, you know, Johnny and I both, re- I reference his age. That is a fact. Twenty-three-year-old English player who's been up and up and up and up and up. That you know they shouldn't be factored into transfer price tags, but they are. They always are. They will be with Bukayo Saka as we debate: will he sign a contract or will he not at Arsenal? Just and I agree with you. Say if you're Manchester United, take that 100 million, 150 million, and go and buy Ruben Neves from Wolves and you know another midfielder from Europe Bellingham, instead. Neves, yeah, exactly. Many, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. But what I would say in Rice's defence, in terms of spending a hell of a lot of money on him if you were to try and prize him away from West Ham. And I say this speaking as someone who on this podcast probably about two years ago said he should be a defender, not a midfielder. And as then probably of all my predictions and comments on this podcast that have been proved wrong, that is right up there. He continues to improve and advance his game. He started off in that midfield position as a kind of ball-winning player. But now you're seeing him you said he's not kind of spraying passes. I think he's starting to add that to his game. He's starting to take the ball forward. He's starting to add goals to his game as well. I'm not saying he's going to become, I don't know, producer John, please don't clip this up for social media. I'm not saying he's going to become Kevin De Bruyne, but he is adding more and more to his game. So you could see at 26, you've got a, a modern complete midfielder who's got a background in defending who's got incredible athleticism, but is starting to add to his game goals and assists as well. So that's, again, where you could justify a huge club going, do you know what, this this guy is going to be the best midfielder in the Premier League for the next nine years. 120 million is a bargain. Yeah, just to add to that, you've also got to remember that there are two prices, really. There's what someone's worth to a buying club, and you can debate whether it's worth 150 million for a player of his ilk, but I, I actually think for a lot of the reasons Tom said it might be but there's, there's, a, there's a value of somebody to the selling club and it's a bit like, I remember speaking to Steve Parrish about Wolf Zaha a couple of years ago and his take was Wolf Zaha is priceless to Crystal Palace you know, there isn't a, there isn't a transfer fee you could, you, could, you could give me that would, would actually be commensurate with his value to us as a football club and I think that's where Declan Rice is for, for West Ham you know, he is, he, is, he is invaluable to them. So that's why um, their price is, is going to be high, if David Moyes has any sense in saying it anyway, so high that it, it almost puts off buyers. Yeah, I think it is very, very high. I think it is the sort of price that would price him out of a move and maybe quite deliberately. You get him to sign, in, you get him to sign a new deal, you include a release clause in it that's probably above £100 million pounds, 
And you probably get that money with clubs knowing, look, if you pay this fee, he'll be yours and there won't be a transfer saga. And maybe the year after or the year after that. But I, I, yeah, I mean, 150 million, if he goes for that, honestly, my jaw will be on the floor as good a player as he is. And it will probably be to Manchester United and we'll be talking about it on the podcast. But there you go. Um, One of the other clubs that you mentioned that he was linked to, Declan Rice, is Chelsea. All the news about them is about their new owners this week. I just wanted to ask a particular question around something I've seen on social media this week when it comes to the reaction of the Chelsea fans to one set of prospective new owners because it got me thinking about where the line is. Let me explain it to you. It's emerged that the Ricketts family, they own the Chicago Cubs baseball team, and they also have the considerable financial backing of the billionaire hedge fund manager Ken Griffin, have already sent a delegation into London to meet with representatives from the Chelsea Pitch Owners PLC and the Chelsea Supporters Trust this week. The Ricketts bid is considered to be amongst the favourites, but it has caused a bit of controversy because Joe Ricketts, who isn't meant to be involved with the sale. He's the father of the Ricketts family, if you like. He was forced to publicly apologise for describing Muslims as his enemy in leaked emails back in 2019. Henceforth this week, the hashtag no to Ricketts campaign was trending on social media. In response to that backlash, the Ricketts family released a statement saying our family rejects any form of hate in the strongest possible terms. Racism and Islamophobia have no place whatsoever in our society. We have developed deep and abiding partnerships with the Muslim community in Chicago, as well as all communities of color. Respect for diversity and inclusion are central to our family's values. If we prevail in our bid for Chelsea, we commit to the club and to the fans that we will actively promote these values. But it did get me thinking about a big decision that's going to be made this week as we get a a much smaller shortlist of Chelsea bidders. What's being considered? Should morality and ethics be considered this week in the shortlisting of the potential new owners? I don't know whether there should be an ethical consideration, but I did want to ask you guys. Johnny, what do you think? I think there has to be, and I think this is a great opportunity because this is by accident almost something that the public theoretically has a say in because government have a have a role to play in rubber stamping it. And you know, hopefully what we've learned from the last few weeks and, and the meltdown caused by Abramovich and, and you know the, 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 the soul searching the game's been doing about ownerships and sports washing and all that sort of stuff is that, that you know, wouldn't it be great if we had looked closer at owners in the past and shouldn't we look more closely going forward? I think this is an opportunity to factor in somebody's just fitness as a, as a, um, as a leader of, of an institution um, to, to take over a club. And there are lots of factors that come into that, but, but one of them has surely got to be, has got to be how they would represent a fan base and how they would, how they would sort of stack up in terms of, all the stuff that we, we, we talk about and, and, you know, diversity is an enormous, is an enormous thing. You know, we've, we've campaigned and talked about in the game. So that's not, I'm not saying that the Ricketts family can't buy Chelsea, but I think it would be right for Chelsea fans, let's say, to, to be reflected um, in that and, um, and for that family to have to, to win them over and re- provide reassurances on the basis of, 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 of what we've we've seen so far from the, those leaked emails. See, I agree with you on that. 
I think that there need to be rules around the owners and directors that include an ethical consideration and bring in any of these, you know, there was an apology from the Ricketts family at the time. Even if you call it a gaffe, I think these things do need to be examined. Any potential owners need to be examined in terms of things that they've said publicly and especially things like diversity and inclusion. So I do think there needs to be a rule brought in, but that rule doesn't currently exist. And I don't think this week that the prospective new owners of Chelsea should be held to a higher standard than the owners that have come in during this season in the Premier League at other clubs. I don't see how that's fair. And I know people say you can't talk about fairness here, but Chelsea have the chance of possibly, and and look, I'm only reading about this, you know, if these people are among the favourites to take over, people clearly think the bid that they are making is structured and solid in some way. They might miss the owner that allows them to stay as the Chelsea we currently know on these grounds. But Newcastle United, for example, when their new owners came in just a few months ago, didn't have to. And I don't and I don't think that this week, unless you bring in new rules for every single new owner that comes into football or the Premier League, if you like, unless those rules exist, I don't think the new owners should be examined by rules that don't. I just don't see how that is fair. And I know, like, again, fairness is a really strange thing when we're talking about these clubs and these billionaires and, and the people that have been in football. But I don't, I don't, I, listen, I want there to be an ethical consideration across the board. I just don't see how you apply it this week when you haven't applied it to other clubs. What do you think, Tom? I think you both raise interesting points. Um, and I think if I was playing the grumpy old man role that I often do, I'd say, well, ethics and social responsibility haven't come a part of it so far, so why should they now? And that that is true. You're right, Hugh, that they haven't been a part of the conversation before, so why should they now? What's interesting with this is that if you compare it to the Newcastle takeover, yes, that was widely trailed and discussed over many, many years. But from a story point of view, it just happened, didn't it? It just happened. We were told it was happening. Wow, Newcastle have been taken over. This Chelsea takeover, it's almost like a kind of auction. It's like a daytime TV auction. It's absolutely bizarre. So you have all these contenders throwing their name into the hat. As we discussed with Martin Ziegler before, the cynic in me thinks that a lot of them have been throwing their name into the hat in order to project their own um, image company or whatever into the spotlight a bit more. Interestingly, because of the size of Chelsea as a club, a lot of the conversations we're having now about the social responsibility, the morals, the ethics of the owners, how much that is a factor in who gets it will come down to the Chelsea fans themselves. The Chelsea fans who, let's be honest, were a big part of the um, crushing of the European Super League. We all remember those images outside Stamford Bridge. But equally, in some sectors of the Chelsea support haven't them co- you know, covered themselves in glory with the reactions to the Russian sanctions. It'll be interesting when we get the three group shortlist, whether the conversation is who's got the most money, who's got the most money, or whether the conversation is what are these people like? Like what are their, you know, what are their social goals? What are their views on social responsibilities? That and that that comes down to us as journalists. That's our responsibility too to ask those questions. So but, uh, the cynic in me ultimately thinks that when we get these the, the, the short list, it'll be how much money have they got? Who's going to be the best fit to keep Chelsea as the Chelsea that they are? Honestly, I was speaking to a Chelsea fan about this yesterday and I said, how many people are really going to buy a club for the amount of money that they're probably going to have to buy Chelsea for out of the sheer love of football? I mean, so we have to like, we have to really think about the considerations here. For me, it's going to boil down to what are your plans? 
Are you going to build a new stadium? And is it going to be on the site of Stamford Bridge or are you just doing this as a property deal? You know, or, you know, I think, because I think a lot of people are buying it, seeing an opportunity that exists outside football, because to be, to put it simply, you're not going to make a lot of money from Chelsea. I mean, and if it's a, a deal like, for example, the Glazers have done with Manchester United, then I think that should rule you out immediately. You know, I don't think you should buy the club with a lot of leveraged debt, for example. So Chelsea are in a big hole. They need to get out of it. And I think we need to be pragmatic and say, in the business world, the things that are going to be at the bottom of the list are the things that you've said that are totally wrong in the past and have apologized for. It's not going to count them out. Again, I think there should be some ethical considerations, some moral considerations, some societal considerations, certainly. I just don't see that happening this week. Those rules don't exist. And I just don't see how you can apply. I, I almost, like I say it, it sounds really weird. I can't think of another word. I'm just not smart enough. It would <laughs> seem unfair on those at Chelsea and the fans to count someone out when you're not counting out ownership groups, wealthy ownership groups elsewhere in the Premier League for ethical considerations. I just, I, and, you know, I don't know what else to say, really. Yeah, look, I get, I get all that, here, And this comes down to almost like a philosophical point. The owner's test in the Premier League is no different to you know, who can buy a British company and essentially it just comes down to financial fitness. And what we're now trying to, to what we're talking about really, you and I are sort of the same thing, really, is trying to almost retrofit the system so that an ethical consideration does come into it. And I guess it's whether you do it now or whether you try and legislate for it. And I think there's a wider debate to be had as to whether football and fans need to re- actually take, take some responsibility here. Do they want football to be different uh, I do, but do the, the fans want it to be different to just another field of business and to, the ownership of a football club, a football club represents something a little bit more than a transactional commercial business does. Um, and there's so many things that spin off that we just mentioned, Declan Rice and transfers. You know, it, it strikes me that we could have some ethical buyers of Chelsea who then can't afford Declan Rice in the summer and get criticised for not spending enough money and, and you know, I've seen some Chelsea fans um, really getting behind the Saudi media group bid because they, they want to be another Newcastle. So fans have got to answer these questions. What do they actually want? I know what I want, and I, I, I don't want football to just be who's got the most money, don't care what else there is to them as long as, the, you know, the ward is there. I think there has to be something more to it. And it's, you know, I, I mentioned this being an opportunity. It just strikes me it might be easier just from a pragmatic point of view, to set to, to do it by precedent and to to try and get some legislation through, but I, I don't know. We 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 we're, we talk about this a lot, don't we? And I'm sure you know we're we're going to be debating. We have the same dilemma throughout the, the 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 year as we always do. You know, we want the clubs to spend money, and then, and and yet we sort of complain when the owners aren't. Up to Scott. Well, thank you, Johnny. And listen, I know you've been with us uh, from the back of a limousine um, as you've been on your way to the Etihad. I know you can't join us for any longer. Gotta go to work. Um, but thank you very much for joining us on the Game Podcast. For all of you listening, there is still more to come. We'll get the latest on the Women's Champions League and an update on Manchester United's managerial search. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review, and make sure you're subscribed. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. 
Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week there have been big games in the Women's Champions League Arsenal are flying the flag for Britain in the competition and they salvage a one-all draw at home to Wolfsburg thanks to a very, very late goal Molly Hudson was there for the Times Hi Molly Are you? Good result for Arsenal, do you think? What about their performance? Yeah, I think it was a it was a really good result in a sense of the fact that they played pretty well through the game and Wolfsburg's goal was was kind of a very clinical finish. I think a lot of their play kind of showed their experience in Europe last night. And I think there was a bit of a worry that perhaps Arsenal would, you know, play pretty well and end up coming, um, coming away from that game with nothing. And I think... That's what was really important. And obviously the fact that Lotta Wuben Moy got that late, late goal, you know, as a lifelong Arsenal fan at the Emirates, it, it was just a really lovely moment. And I think the the kind of celebrations reflected how important that could be with the tie now, you know, completely open, heading heading to Germany next week. Do you think that it's a chance that Arsenal go through, a good chance that they'll go through? Because as you mentioned, Wolfsburg do have more of the experience at this level of competition. Yeah, I think m- most people would have had Wolfsburg as the favourites. And I think, I think that was fair to say, even before the game, you know, last night we were saying, you know, the chances are, you know, Arsenal could get beat here. But I think... I think with Arsenal, the fact that they're not very experienced, they they have this ability on their day to kind of beat pretty much anyone. But it's just finding that consistency and being able to produce it on the big big platform, big moments. And I think last night they they did a decent job of that. So I think now they'll really take confidence from that, knowing that they've gone toe to toe with Wolfsburg. And I think I think Jonas Idevel said last night after the game it took them a while to almost grow into the game and I think they really will take confidence from that going into the second leg but you know we we saw what Wolfsburg did to Chelsea in the second leg 
you know, absolutely thrashed them 4-0. So I think we know how dangerous Wolfsburg can be. But yeah, the, the tie is totally open going into that second leg. Would be good to see a WSL team progress, but it is a big task uh, for Arsenal. Let's talk about some of the other matches in the Champions League this week. Elsewhere, uh, Paris Saint-Germain won at Bayern. Juve won at home to Lyon. Barcelona won the El Clasico 3-1 away from home as well. I think we'll come to maybe Barcelona on their own. Um, Juventus beating Lyon. Is that the, the shock of the round, maybe? Yeah, it is. And I uh, kind of watched a little bit of that that game from, from the Emirates last night. And I think it's it's testament to, firstly, obviously, there was a, uh, a red card for Lyon, which obviously played a a big part but I think it's a it's a testament to the work that Joe Montemoro uh, the former Arsenal manager is doing at Juventus um, they've had a really good season and particularly when when you frame it in a sense of the fact that the Italian league isn't professional yet I think the the work that they've done to, to kind of compete with the very best teams in in Europe is really admirable and I think um, I think Joe's doing really well out there and it it's kind of a team that has a lot of, of talent without having big standout names, I suppose. And the, the, the way that the kind of team is, is working together is um, is really impressive. And we saw a little bit of that when, obviously, Chelsea played Juventus in, in the group stages. And I think, yeah, they've really, they've really built on that. And I think, actually, what we've seen from quite a lot of Italian women's teams is is how good they can be defensively so I think that's a really difficult tie actually for, for Leon going into that second leg knowing that they've got to score goals knowing they've got to get something I think I think Juventus could could kind of pull off a really big shot there Paris Saint-Germain winning at Bayern as well is probably expected is it? Yeah I think so I think um, Inca Toto who, who scored for PSG you know they have a, an incredible talent there and I think mm, Having seen how well Lyon have done in the French League, PSG are really challenging them now and have kind of grown in, in recent years. So I think, yeah, I think it was probably to be expected that, that PSG would, would win that one. But, uh, the, you know, the strength and depth in European teams is, is growing all the time. And I think that's kind of reflected across all of these ties this time around. And Barcelona allowed us to think that there might be a shock on the cards for a little bit before pulling away right at the death. 3-1 win over Real Madrid. Uh, they're just going to be the team to beat in this year's competition for you? I think so, yeah. I think, look, they've, they've already won the league in Spain. You know, they won it two weeks ago and I think if you can win any kind of top league in Europe this early, it shows kind of how good you are. Um, yeah, they, they kind of haven't put a foot wrong other than, you know, maybe the opening stages of, the, of that game the other night, actually. I think a lot of people were kind of watching it thinking, you know, wow, we was expecting Barcelona to win quite comfortably. Um but actually, they kind of found a way. And I think that probably sums up Barcelona at the moment where when everything was against them, they kind of plucked a, <laughs> a pretty controversial penalty that kind of um, got the equaliser. And then from there on in, it, you know, it was only going to end one way, I think. So, and I also think they've just got so much talent on the pitch, you know, Alexia Patelas, yeah, um, Caroline Graham Hansen, just so many talented players that even when it is going against you, you know, you're, you've got the you've got the talent on the pitch to kind of pull out of the bag. So I think, yeah, I think they've just got so much confidence and I think they're, they're definitely the team to beat. Yeah, 24 wins out of 24 in the league in Spain. All the focus now on, on European competition for them. We do have second legs to come next week, so we'll speak again at that point, Molly, see if the predictions come to light. Uh, there is one other thing I wanted to speak to you about, though. Arda Hegerberg is back for Norway 
after, I think, a five-year absence. Um, what does that mean for international women's football? I think it's brilliant, and I think it's brilliant because ultimately what you want, uh, and we see this in the men's game as well, that you know sometimes you get very talented players that are with nations that, for whatever reason, don't qualify for tournaments. And I think, ultimately, you just want the best players in the biggest tournaments and you know Ada Hegerberg is is one of the very best in the world um obviously was the best in the world before before she got injured and was out for for a little while um she's getting back to her best now i think that it's just fantastic to to see her you know at a tournament and i think it's so important in the women's game that she did stand up and she did say actually no i'm not going to play because i don't believe the the conditions that are available to the players are good enough so I think it's also really a, a positive step that she clearly feels as though enough has changed for her mind to change. And I think for all of us watching, you know, whether as fans or in the media, it's just a, a brilliant step to see her back on the international stage because, you know, she's, she's such a fantastic player. And actually, you know, we've seen how good Norway have been um, without Ada. So imagine how good they can be with her. Yeah, she's been an unbelievable player, of course. We were for best uh, women's player in 2016, the first female player to win the new Ballon d'Or, if you like, uh, saying today, I love football. I want to play football. I took a decision in 2017 that I stood by, but I had a lot of time to reflect over the past two years on many aspects and I've had very honest discussions with the Federation. I'm very glad to be able to come back with the team and get a new story started. And let's see what she does produce uh, with a great nation in Norway. Uh, Molly Hudson, thank you so much for joining us for that update on the Game Podcast. As I say, in a week's time, we will know who is through uh, to what the final four in the Champions League. So we shall see. Uh, we'll speak to you then. Take care. Manchester United's managerial search finally feels real. It's been put off like a piece of university coursework. And now John Murto and Richard Arnold are in their library pulling an all-nighter, trying to get it over the line. Paul Hurst joins us for an update on what will hopefully be one of the big stories in the next few weeks rather than months. Um, Hursty, the Ajax boss, Eric Ten Hag, has done an interview because clearly we can't judge what a manager is like from the hours and hours of footage of their team playing. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it is a bit strange, isn't it, talking about it? You know, like you said, it, we've had, there has been a vacancy since November and it's taken them till March to actually start talking to people. So, um, yeah, it's the, the process is finally underway. Um, Eric Ten Hag was interviewed on Monday um, and we believe it went well or, you know, Ten Hag thought he made a good impression and United were quite impressed by him from what I hear. So he's the first of first of four, we think. You know, United are at pains to say that he's, yeah, that they've not made a decision that that he's still a four-horse race. Um, uh, that's what we've been told anyway. So it's... Uh, but, but, you know, Ted Hag's got his foot in the door. He's, he's made a good impression to, to start off with. So, you know, that's, um, you know, he's laid down a kind of early marker, I guess. And, you know, if, in many ways, he does kind of fit the United um, model. You know, he, he works in a similar kind of structure at Ajax where they have a, a director of football who takes care of all the um, uh, transfers and recruitment, etc. It's, it's, it's different, uh, you know, the coach is left... The head coach is left to coach, basically. And United are sort of moving to that system at the moment um, or have done over the last year. So he does fit in that respect. But, you know, 
um, you know, we'll wait to see whether he actually gets the job. I find it a bit weird. I mean, Man United calling it a four horse race suggests to me that they don't know what kind of manager they really want. I mean, how much of this is going to be about the interview process? Because like I say, you, you should know a lot about these coaches already. So the idea that you sit down with them and what, it's all carte blanche between the four of them, is it? You know, everyone starts on the same footing. I don't think so. But I think it works the other way as well, doesn't it? They want to know whether like Richard Arnold and John Murtor, et cetera, will want to know whether they are, you know, whether Ten Hag is really wants the job. You know, does he does he really want to make this step up from Ajax, which, you know, is a big club, but it's not one of the biggest clubs which United is. Does he really want it? You know, do they can they get a feel for actually whether he's he would be able to deal with the pressure of being a Man United manager? Um does Pochettino want it really or is he kind of you know, is he flirting with them to get the Real Madrid job? Um, does would Luis Enrique give his job up before the end of the uh, season? Which, from what I'm told, is is unlikely. Um, they leave Spain before the World Cup, um, and then Julian Lopetegui as well. Does does he, you know, does he really want it? Has he got a plan for for United moving forward? So, I, don't, I, th- I think you can gauge a lot from Swan's personality uh, in an interview, isn't it? You, you know, this is. This is the guy who, you know, they will be uh, giving a, a really big job to. You know, this is a this is a huge appointment um, for the club and for for Richard Arnold as well. You know, this will this will go a long way to um, to defining his his career his, um, his career as uh, chief executive Man United. Is the Thomas Tuchel dream dead? Because that was in the headlines not too long ago. Basically, if if Tuchel was available, they'd, they'd get him. I, I, I don't think there would be um, an issue with that. I, you know, Tuchel is a very obviously got a very good track record. Uh, won the Champions League with with Chelsea, and he's his style of play is very good as well. It kind of fits with United's, and he's I, you know I've had conversations with people high up at United's um, over the last couple of years, and Tuchel's name has always been mentioned. Uh, is, is one of the best coaches in the world and they're aware of him and they're a fan of him but I, d- I don't really know how we can get him out of Chelsea at the moment it's uh, no one re- no one really knows what's going to happen with Chelsea do they you know uh, Tuchel probably doesn't know himself so I think it would be a bit presumptuous of United to to, to go for him and then you know not get him they'd look pretty silly I would say um, and you know this is looking from the outside but you look at all the Look at all the bidders that are lining up for Chelsea. They they they've all seemed they all seem to have a lot of money or seem to be quite well backed. So, you know, who's to say that the 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 one there might not be actually that much difference to Tuchel's role under the new ownership at Chelsea than than the one he's got now. Just quickly on this, I just want to understand the process. Then, Mauricio Pochettino, Luis Enrique, Lopetegui. They're all going to have interviews, are they? Or is Eric Ten Hag the only one that's going to have to go through this? I mean, I know there's going to be conversations, but the others have jobs. So you either go for them and you pull them out of their jobs, or I just don't understand it because in the history, in my mind of how it works, you go for a manager that's got a job, you have to speak to the club, you've got to pay compensation, you've got to go through, through all of those things before you bring them in. Um, the idea that it's an interview process, it's like you're interviewing four people that need a job and they don't. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. It is, I, I did find it find it strange that, you know, that they, that this is 
well, this has come out now that this is actually happening. Um, you know, Ten Hag's got a job, hasn't he? You know, he's in a position, he's, he's got another, you know, year and a half left on his Ajax contract. But we're told that Ajax gave United um, their blessing, but that's only because they've got a good relationship with the club. Edwin van der Sar gets on well with, um, you know, clearly everyone at United. Uh, there's, there's, there's a link there. But, you know, if, if, if I was PSG, I, I know Pochettino, you know, isn't flavour of the month there at the moment, but I'd be thinking, yeah, well, he's our manager. You know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to get him, you've got to pay his compensation, etc. Um, so yeah, he, he would take the, you know, take the uh, say so of the clubs would take the agreement of the clubs, you know, of PSG, of Sevilla, and, and Spain, the, the national federation as well, for Man United to speak to these managers. Tom, what do you think's going on with United? Is it more indecision? It's definitely indecision, but I'm I'm trying to work out listening to uh, some of Hursty's points and your points, Hugh, and th- trying to wonder where it comes from because I, I just wonder whether you know they've gone down so many different routes in terms of managerial choices post Alex Ferguson that I almost wonder whether because of the change at the top as well, you know, as Hursty says with Richard Arnold replacing Ed Woodward, you know, this kind of new era feel, people like Darren Fletcher being in place. I wonder whether Hursty, obviously, you can kind of shed more light on this. It's almost like they're trying very, very hard to be seen as being meticulous and well-prepared and not just plump for Mourinho or plump for Solskjaer or, you know, two very different types of managers with a different approach, different ethos and, you know, a different brand of uh, club, if you like. But it's almost like, you know, Hugh, Hugh's mentioned it, this how strange process. Hursty, you mentioned not looking stupid. I almost wonder whether like they're kind of like psyching themselves out here. Like they're over, are they overthinking it almost? Hersey, do you reckon? Well, I, I think they've been, you know, they've been thorough. And like you, like you said, they in the past they've they've been, uh, you know, directed by almost by emotion too much. You know, with their, you know, with with Solskjaer in particular. You know, he 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 wasn't good enough for that job, was he? You know, but because they they beat PSG and and he managed to get them in the Champions League, then. You know that's uh, that's that was that was enough basically, or you know they had that they had that kind of glimmer of of hope with Ollie, and they you know they they put everything um, every, all their faith in him, and with Mourinho as well, it was like right, he's available, so we should get him. You know, he's he's won loads of things without really kind of giving much thought to whether you know whether it actually work or not. You know, it's. So, so I, I, you know, in in this instance, it is strange, as I said, that they're you know, interviewing people who already have other jobs. Um, but I, I think it's it's a fair process in uh, you know talking to these people. You know, you, you want to have the best um, picture possible of, of these of these managers before you offer them the job because it's such a such a huge role. Hersty, can I can I just ask as well? I was thinking about. You know, you've you've followed United for a long time now, and particularly through all this period. And you know, you and I have talked about them through various different managers. And me and the editors often ring you up and go, "Right, we need you to write this piece on what needs to happen for Manchester United, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But like, what if you could think about one or two qualities that you think as a coach, rather than picking which of these people do you think, having watched them so much and seen so much turmoil at the club? What would be the one or two qualities of a manager that you would be thinking that's what they need? I would want a manager who unifies the dressing room. That would be my number one priority. Um, that I would want a, a charismatic um, personality, a leader, 
who has um, experience and has won things and, you know, really gets <laughs> gets everyone singing off the same hymn sheet because at the moment it's a fractured squad built up, you know, built up. There, there are players there from five different, who have been bought by five different managers and that is not a way to run a football club, is it? You know, five different managers, five different playing styles. And some of them are unhappy that they're playing and some of them are unhappy that they're playing out of position. And, you know, that's coming out in the press, which is obviously great for us. I'm not complaining about that. Um, <laughs> um, but it's just it's just a really bad look for the football club, isn't it? I mean, you are supposed to be the biggest club in the world and you've got, you know, infighting and, and leaps, et cetera. Um, so I would want uh, a real someone who can bond the team who can get you know get them fighting for the cause and and just re- because at the moment it's, it's really um it looks like um he doesn't look like they're all pulling in the same direction it's pretty uh it's just like oh we'll you know put these players out and hopefully one of them will come up with with the goods on the day it's um so yeah that's why i would want someone who could you know could make the, the squad um you know, have a, have a belief in what they're doing and have an actual direction. Hursty, just before we end the podcast, settle a debate for us. We were talking about Declan Rice a little bit earlier on. £150 million on the back pages of the papers this week. Are Manchester United the only football club dumb enough to pay it? <laughs> no, absolutely. They won't pay that much. I would be surprised. They, they, won't, they won't go to £100 million for it. I mean, as... as um, as has been pointed out, I think I was looking on Twitter, so I was saying this yesterday, that everyone was um, um, incredulous uh, or looking at that, that that figure and saying, oh my God, 150 million, they're never going to get that for, for Rice. But yeah, that's the point. <laughs> they, know, they don't want to sell him. So that's why they put 150 million pound price tag on him. So, but yeah, United wouldn't, you wouldn't go for that high. You know, I don't think anyone would. City certainly wouldn't. Yeah, they didn't go that. They wouldn't go that high for for Harry Kane. Um, so I, I just think, yeah, that defensive midfield slot is the biggest weakness in the team at the moment. But they wouldn't go that high for Declan Rice, or you know, however good a player that he is. Okay, that solved it. So when they pay what 125 <laughs> uh, in a few months' time, <laughs> yeah. when when they pay 149 and they, they get him, you can come to me and say, "Well, you were almost right. 150 million. I, I wouldn't put any of your own money on on that happening." Uh, brilliant, Paul Hurst. As always, thank you for joining us on the Game Podcast, Tom Clark. Thank you as well, and thank you all for listening. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with much more. Uh, but remember. Remember, you can enjoy uh, some of our brighter insights on politics, business and more. For just £1, you can get three months of everything. A subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe now at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.